All right, so we're in Genesis 23 today. I want to give you a warning about next week. We're in Genesis 24 next week, and there's 67 verses. There's 67 verses. It'll take 12 to 15 minutes to read it one time. So I urge you to read it this week and to have familiarity with it as you uh, come. I, we ask for that every week, but I really want to emphasize it in preparation for next week. Our plan is to do it all in one week. It's going to be a lot. So thus far up to this point, we have spent 26 weeks covering the life of Abraham. That is half of a year. In these 26 weeks, we have covered 11 chapters of Scripture, and we have covered 62 years of Abraham and Sarah's life. So 26 weeks, 11 chapters, and 62 years are behind us. I tell you that including today, we have three more weeks ahead of us. We have two and a half chapters and 38 years to cover. So we don't know as much about Abraham's later life as what we do about the middle section of his life. So we're planning three more weeks in Abraham, two and a half chapters, and it'll cover a time span of 38 years. So in our passage today, Sarah dies at the age of 127. She was about 65 when we first met her back in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. In today's passage, Abraham is 137 years old. He's 10 years older. And Isaac is 37. Isaac is their son. He is the son of the promise. So if you would, turn to Genesis 23. I'm going to read the chapter together, and then we will uh, spend a little bit of time reading it uh, uh, personally. Genesis 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites. Of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I, I'm sorry, but if you will, 
Hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This time, take a little bit of time to yourself and uh, read and jump in, and uh, we'll start our discussion in four or five minutes. So, let's just read verse 1 and 2 to start with. It's a tragic occasion. It's something that half of us that are married will live with, right? We will lose our spouse. We will lose our spouse. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And y'all, I can't tell you how much is in the second part of verse 2 for us. What Abraham does in the second part of verse 2 is something that is not done well today. It reads, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. When we're sad, I'm speaking generally of the American culture that we're all a part of. When we're sad, we have a really hard time crying. We have a really hard time weeping. We have a really hard time mourning. I want to tell you that taking time to weep And mourn when there is loss. Is something that God calls us to. He calls us to it. Let's move on. We'll come back to this a little bit before we're done. In verses 3 and 4. Abraham sets out with a mission. He wants to secure a family cemetery. Okay. Uh, my, my family on both sides goes way back in this county. I got, there, there's family cemeteries I could be buried in all over the place in Gates County. <laughs> there's one through the woods from my house. Okay? It's called the Howell Cemetery, which was my mother's main name. I, I'm sorry, I said both sides of my family. I meant on my mom's side. Both her parents go way back in this area. My dad's from Ohio. There's family cemeteries all over the place. Verse 3 and 4, it reads, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, 
I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He identifies himself, as we've already seen in our discussion, as a stranger, as a sojourner, as a foreigner. And he's been there for many decades. But this is his identity in his own view of himself. And and I, I didn't say his own view of himself to say I disagree with him at all. But this is how he understands who he is. A sojourner or stranger is a resident alien that has some place in the community, some presence in the community, but they are not welcomed as full citizens. They have some rights and opportunity, but those rights are restricted. Their influence or ability to serve and do things or participate in things is restricted. It'd be kind of like someone having a a, a refugee status in our nation. They can probably work. They can probably rent a place to live. But they can't vote and they can't do a whole lot of other stuff that only American citizens can do. And for the Hittites who Abraham was approaching, who, who were, you know, the dominant people of this land, allowing a stranger the opportunity to purchase or possess a piece of property, it was not allowed very often because that would allow an outsider to have a permanent place that they could call theirs. It was a risk for them to do this. And Abraham knew that he was making a huge request In verse 5 and 6, it reads, The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. You can have the best, Abraham. Nobody's going to stop you from getting you what you want. Abraham, we know who you are. You are a man of God. A prince of God, they said. We've seen this before, haven't we? Chapter 21, Abimelech, even though Abraham had been a major jerk in chapter 20, Abimelech knew that Abraham was a man of God. And that was not the first occasion where we saw that. We had seen that with the Egyptian pharaoh, I believe, the end of chapter 12, much earlier this year. Abraham was a stranger who had a reputation. And I point this out because I want each of you to know it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter who your mama was or who your daddy was or what color of your skin is. If you walk with God, God will open up every door that is needed to open before you. It shows us, okay, and and this wasn't planning on going here, but I'm going to do it. It shows us that this identity politics that we see being pushed in our culture that defines who you are by your skin or by whatever, by your skin color or or by whatever history your family has behind them. There's a group of people that are trying to define your destiny and to identify you 
by things that you had absolutely no part in. And we don't play like that. That is a foolish way to look at this world. It's like one presidential candidate saying, if you don't vote for me, then you don't have a certain skin color. It is horribly dishonest. It is wrong. It is evil. It is from the pit of hell. What do we see happening here for this outsider? And this is one of the things I love about America. Sorry, I'm going here. If you want to do something great with your life, we've got laws that will allow you to do it in this nation. Amen. And I am so grateful for that. Yes. Amen. Abraham, by the content of his character, and that is an intentional reference to Martin Luther King Jr., by the content of his character... By the life that he lived, he became known as a man of God. Now, obviously, the blessing of God was upon him as well. We can't deny that. We've seen that week after week after week. But he was a man who walked with God, and they knew him as a man of God. And in that, with that reputation of, of being someone as a man of God, the hand of the Lord was on him. And God opened this door. The Hittites gave him a place to bury his dead wife. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, if you've got a blue Bible, page 1110. And we'll spend most of the rest of our time in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, we'll begin in verse 8 in a moment. So we're turning to Hebrews 11 because we learn more specifically about what it means that Abraham was a stranger or a sojourner. And in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16, there's two aspects of him being a stranger. Both of them are real, both of them are legitimate, both of them are, are, are things that we can identify with to one degree or another. We see one aspect of his sojourning being the same aspect that was in Genesis 23. He lives in a foreign land. He lives as an outsider. I've spent three weeks in Turkey in 2006. I was an outsider. I've been to Central America. I've been to Cuba. I was an outsider. When I moved to Tampa, when I moved to Austin, I was an outsider. They couldn't tell by looking at me, but if you talked to me long, you could tell I didn't know how things worked. I went to Austin. They had these service roads along the highway. I had to completely relearn how to drive. It was uncertain, as you said earlier. So there is this aspect of just being in a different place. But there's a second aspect of sojourning, and that is... That we have been called by a holy God and we have been made a holy people. And we live in a corrupt, sinful, and broken world. People say this world is not our home. I would say, just to make it a bit more specific, this world as it is, is not our home. And I'm going to preach on that some during Advent, so y'all just wait for that. But this world as it is is not our home. So that's the second aspect. Hebrews 11 verse 8 reads, 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Let me tell you something. When God calls you and you believe in him, you become a stranger in this world. Amen. He makes you new. He changes you. You are now something that you previously were not. Now your citizenship is in heaven, as it says in Philippians 3.20. And this world is not your home. If you are a Christian, you are now a sojourner. Look at the second part of verse 8. He went out not knowing where he was going. 62 years prior to this, Abraham left everything he had known. Hebrews 11 verse 1, it says that faith is the conviction of things not seen. He was promised a land. He couldn't see it, but he took that first step. And then he took thousands more after that. He came to a point in his life where he saw the land. He was there, but he did not yet possess it. And God told him that he would. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And he lived his entire life up to this point, and really his entire life up to death, where that land was not his. But there is a land. And he did live there. And it was promised to him and his descendants. It was called an inheritance. He didn't know how to get it. But he knew that his God was faithful. And that if God promised it. Then God would give it to him. When the time was right. And that trust in God caused him. To walk obediently with God. For the majority of his life. His son Isaac. Who we'll learn much more about next week. And his grandson Jacob, who haven't been born yet, they also identified as sojourners. Probably about a half dozen times in the book of Genesis, I found the places where both his children and grandchildren said, we are sojourners in this land like Abraham was. A thousand years later, King David joins them and he identifies as a sojourner. In 1 Chronicles 29, 15, he says, He's praying. He says, we are strangers before you and sojourners. He's talking about all the people. And by that time, they had thoroughly possessed the land. But King David is making a link with the sojourning of Abraham that was local because he was in a foreign land. But he's linking that with the sojourning that we can identify with as Christians. That this world in its present condition is not our home. But in 1 Chronicles 29, 15, David says, we're strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. So in that prayer, David's looking back and he's like, yep, just like Abraham, just like Isaac, just like Jacob, we're foreigners. But then he goes on to say, our days on the earth are like a shadow. There is no abiding. David is speaking of the shortness of life on earth And how we don't abide for long 
in this world in its present and current condition. Jesus could identify with this status as a sojourner. In Matthew 8.20, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. John 16.33, this is the night before Jesus died, and Jesus tells everybody, he tells his disciples specifically, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, you have peace in me, but in this world you will have trouble, and you will have tribulation And he says, take heart. This world that will give you trouble has been overcome by me. And there's a battle going on and we know that already, don't we? And Jesus is saying, I've already won the battle. So you are a sojourner. You are a holy child of God and you're living in a holy place. And there's a conflict between the holiness and the sin. There's a conflict between the work of God and the work, evil work of man. And we're living in the middle of the war zone, church. Mm-hmm. You will have tribulation. But where is our peace? Our peace is in the fact that Jesus Christ, whom we trust and believe, has overcome this world. John eighteen thirty six. he speaks to Pilate, who has the power to, ex- to sentence him to death or to free him. He says this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. This world and its current condition is not our home church. Amen. It is not our home. This kingdom that God has made us a part of, it transcends any earthly or political kingdom. There will be a day when the United States will cease to exist. There, but that's not true for the kingdom of God. In my lifetime, I have seen numerous nations rise and fall throughout the globe. But the kingdom of God is offensively advancing. And, and Jesus, as he leads the charge, is bringing every enemy of God into subjection to the Lord, to, to himself. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15 earlier this year, Jesus is going to turn over that kingdom to the God the Father after every other enemy has been destroyed. Amen. Y'all, the kingdom of God is a, it is a most wonderful, world-changing reality. And I highly commend the study of the kingdom of God to you. Going back to Hebrews 11, verse 9. I share, all that, I share all that from all over the Bible with you just to see how much we identify with people of God throughout the centuries as sojourners. Verse 9. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So he lived in tents, right? Okay, that's important because we're going to get to something much bigger and better than a tent in just a moment. And his kids and his grandkids did too. Verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I want to preach a five-week sermon series on that one verse. Oh my, there's so much there. Wow! 
He was looking forward to the city. He didn't have no city. There were cities, but he didn't have a city. And he was looking for a city that has foundations. I'm not too familiar with the type of tent that Abraham would have had back then, but I have set up tents in my life. Last time I did it was probably spring, April, or May. And I'll drive that tent peg down 8, 12, maybe 14 inches at most. That's not a very firm foundation, is it? It's not very thorough. Yeah, it'll keep the tent there during a windstorm. But I like the foundation on my house a whole lot better. Amen. And I can rest assured that the foundations of this city are far superior to the foundation of any building that we have ever stood in. The foundation of the city of God is one that will keep that city there for all eternity. No enemy will be able to advance. No one will defeat or conquer that city. It has foundations and the designer and builder of those foundations, the designer and builder of that city is God himself. Skip ahead to verse 13 and it says, these all died in faith. Now, what does that mean? It means the writer of Hebrews is referencing Abraham and several other people of the Old Testament, included as Sarah. Included as Noah, included as Enoch. I think that's it. But Hebrews 11 is talking about a lot of different men and women of God. And in verse 13 it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I want you to note from verse 13 how these people died and how they lived. I want you to look at how they died and how they lived. And I want us to die this way and I want us to live this way. They died in faith. They were still waiting. They were still trusting that God would give them all that was promised. I can't help but think that there's a lot of old folks that have died in our world. And they were praying for someone. And they never saw God answer the prayer for that person. But at some point... After they died, God answered the prayer. I got a feeling there's a whole lot of people with God right now who can say that that's true. I got a feeling that some of us are in this room today because God answered a prayer that someone prayed for you who is now dead. I can't help but think that that is true. So they all died. This is how they uh, died. They died in faith, waiting and trusting that God would still do things that he had promised to do. Let's look at how they lived. They saw the things that were promised, even though they were far away. They saw the things that were promised, even though they were far away. And what did they do? They greeted them from afar. Now, how do we do this today? Have you had a really sweet and wonderful encounter with the Lord? Whether that was in your prayer closet and it was just you and him or whether that was in this room with 25 other people. Have you had this incredible experience of God and you enjoyed it? 
and you looked forward to it. You saw it and you savored it. And you look forward to it again. Have you experienced the joy of God in a way that is unusually wonderful and unusually deep? You know, kind of like some people call it top experiences with God. You know? And, and, and I've had some of those. And I probably will have some of those. And I look forward to them. How do we greet the things promised from afar? I say that we welcome and we anticipate and we pursue these glimpses of God and these experiences of joy. How do we greet them from afar? God comes real close and we say, God, thank you for that. God, that was wonderful. God, I'm going to come back in this prayer closet with you and I'm going to call on you again. That was sweet. I, you know, it, it's a greeting, right? It doesn't last forever. Okay? You know, it comes and goes. You don't spend seven days a week with me, but I greet you every time I see you, right? Amen. And I enjoy it and I look forward to it and I experience you as we're together in the same room. And praise God, we can be in the same room now, right? Okay? It's every one of us, we need that deeply. And we greet each other when we see each other. Well, when you experience the Lord, you greet Him and you hold on to Him. You stay as long as you can there with Him, knowing that you can't stay in that particular moment forever, but knowing that you will get to see Him again. Little glimpses of God, wonderful experiences of joy. And as you greet these, you know that that is a small taste of eternity, church. That is a small taste. That, that's a little bit. Okay? So they died in faith waiting and trusting that God would give them all that was promised. They lived seeing the things that were promised and greeting them from afar. And also, according to verse 13, there at the end, they rightly understood that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham rightly stood that, understood that, and I'm calling us to understand it today. Look at verse 14. We learn more about how we live as a sojourner. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. So we speak and live our lives like Abraham did. And it becomes obvious and clear that we are holding on to what we have here in this world. There is so much more. Let me ask you, how do you speak? What comes out of your mouth? And I'm not telling you to go out and tell everyone every day this world ain't my home. That's not what I'm telling you to do, okay? I'm, I'm just speak, speaking of your attitude in all of your interactions. Would you evaluate your life? Are you living your life as if you are seeking a homeland? Or are you seeking the same thing that everyone else around us is seeking? Verse 15, here's, here's the wrong way to live. If they, Abraham, had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Occasionally in my head, I go and I think about what I had before I was a Christian and what I could have if I were not a Christian. 
Now, that doesn't happen often. But that is a backward and sinful way of thinking, and I fight against it. And I know that many of you fight against it with everything that's in you. Let me ask you, how much time do you spend thinking about what God called you out of? My first year at Bible college, I was in the cafeteria. This was a college in Elizabeth City. And someone said, if you ever fall away from the faith, you have to try this. And he went into a very specific sin, and I got up from the table and I left. It made me sick. And I was, would have been 18, 19 years old at the time. We can't fix our eyes on Jesus, as God has clearly called us to do. We can't um, see the promise and greet it from afar if we are looking back to the sin that we could participate in. If you are going in that direction, then I call you boldly right now to turn around and come back to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we see Peter warn us against an ungodly life. And we see him identify us as strangers and exiles. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What does that mean? It means stay away from all the things that your sinful nature really craves and wants to do. Stay away from it. Don't participate in it. So I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Peter wants us to know who we are. And he wants us to know how to live in that position as a sojourner in exile. He goes on to say that these passions of our sinful nature wage war against your soul. You ever backslided or gone into sin and it just made a wreck of your soul? That's what that sin does. And Peter goes on to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then we go to verse 16 and we finish in Hebrews with this. As it is, they desire a better country. That is strangers and exiles. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. A true sojourner desires something better. And that was echoed in some of your comments earlier. And God is not ashamed to be called our God because we want him and we look forward to him as our inheritance. And in verse 16, we must realize that God has prepared for us a city. Now we have to think about Sarah's death in terms of sojourning. Sarah went to be with God. Okay? She's not a sojourner anymore, y'all. Abraham's stuck here for another, I think it's 38 years, I think. We'll see that in two weeks. Abraham still has that sojourner, that exile status. And his wife doesn't. His wife's body is before him. And her soul is not. It is not. The pain is difficult of loss, church. 
And Abraham, in the second part of Genesis 23, verse 2, it says, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I told you earlier that most of us don't do this very well today. I personally get fed up when I am with someone who has just lost someone and their friends are encouraging them to not cry or even shaming them. In almost any funeral I've ever been involved in, that has happened at some level or another. Don't cry. It'll be okay. Don't cry. It will be okay, but it's not okay right now because I'm never going to talk to that person again who's sitting right there, laying right there in that box. That's what I want to tell people sometimes. And I haven't done that in the moment. And I probably won't ever do it, but I'll do it now. Abraham went in to weep and mourn. It was an event. I'd love to know how much time he spent in there. Hebrew death and burial customs said that she was probably buried within 12 to 24 hours. It was probably very, very quick that that happened. But the text does not say specifically Jesus cried in front of other people when his dear friend Lazarus died in John chapter 11, church. Read the book of Psalms and the life of David. Incredible man of God. A great leader. That brother cried a bunch, y'all. He cried a bunch. Read the Psalms. Read about the death of his son Absalom. The man cried a bunch. Sarah died. She was no longer a sojourner. She was in the presence of God. Abraham was still sojourning. This separation, this divide hurts. Weeping is the right response. Now, what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 is important. We are to give thanks in all circumstances, but we can do that while mourning. And sometimes... We, we, we've got this phrase, and it's not a horrible phrase, and I don't condemn the use of it by any means at all. But I think we use it too soon. We jump right to that celebration of life far quicker than we should. And we fail to reflect on the sobering and dreadful reality of death. We go straight to our best times, our fondest memories. And when we do that, Church, we miss out on something that God wants to do in us while we're weeping. Because Jesus also said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who weep and mourn, for they will be comforted. Death puts all of us on the same playing field. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every economic status, everyone on the planet dies. It equalizes us. It reminds us that we all have the same story. That we have all rebelled against God. That we're all full of sin. We're all broken and we all live in a broken world. And it reminds us of the sin that we participated in and the sin that our father, Adam, and our mother, Eve, participated in. See, when we think about death, we have to think through the reality of the entire story. And that is that we are all sinners under the condemnation of God 
And when we see someone die, they're there in that coffin. They're there six feet under. They're there on that urn on the mantle. They're there because of our sin. And when we fail to think about death, when we fail to embrace the pain, when we fail to weep and mourn as we should, we do ourselves a disservice. We do our community a disservice. And we do this world a disservice. In church, y'all know the good news. Jesus came and he conquered death because he hasn't sinned. And he calls us to believe that. And to believe that he is the sinless Savior sent from God. And while mourning and weeping is appropriate in this life, on this side of death, on this side of the Lord's return... It is not an eternal activity. And that every tear will be wiped away because Jesus has come. He has conquered death. He's already done it, but He's still doing it and He's going to do it. And if you know Jesus, then that's your story. If you don't know Jesus, I tell you today, believe in Him, call on His name, church, and He will save. Let's pray.